Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the business school and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on innovation. We're increasingly hearing the mantra that firms and countries have to be more innovative to thrive and prosper. But what is innovation? Is it all about technological change or is it something broader? And how can we foster innovation? And does it have a dark side? Can innovation be too disruptive? Perhaps we need less innovation and not more. Joining me today to discuss this topic are Sucheta Nadkarni, Sinyi Professor of Chinese Management and Head of the Strategy and International Business Subject Group at Cambridge Judge Business School and Professorial Fellow of Newnham College. Simon Stockley, Senior Faculty in Management Practice at Cambridge Judge Business School and Jeremy Hutchinson Kruppert, University Senior Lecturer in Operations and Technology Management at Cambridge Judge Business School. Welcome. So innovation is one of those buzzwords that dominates corporate strategy and dominates discussions of economic policy. So perhaps the first question we should really kick off with is, what is innovation? Jeremy? I think innovation is something that I would say first is new, but we need to get a lot more around what do we even mean by new, right? So it's something new something useful, so it's something that adds value. And I think the last part is one that people generally tend to forget about, right? So it would be when you talk to people, it's more, as you said, technology, right? So the buzzwords around tech, but it's, it's really about something that has to be implemented. For it to be innovation, it has to be something that's implemented. Now that's different than saying it has to be widely adopted, right? So I think we don't want to define it. People can go too narrow and say it's defined by how much revenue it generates, right? I've worked with companies that it's not an innovation unless within some period of time it generates so much revenue. I think that's constraining it too much, right? But I would start with those three things. So new, useful, and implemented. Good. Simon, would you want to add to that? Agree with that absolutely. I mean, one of the best sort of definitions that I've come across is it's the product of innovation and commercial, sorry, invention and commercialization. And of course, you know, if one of those things doesn't exist, the result is is no innovation. So it's you know it's, it's zero. And I'm also reminded of um, you know way back in was it 1934 Joseph Schumpeter's mm -hmm. early work on that carrying out new combinations. And the sort of disruptive side of, of innovation, when, when he talked about the, the gale of creative destruction, where you know, the, the new, better sort of products and services replacing the old um, you know, in, in this Schumpterian gale. And I think the implementation is a big part of that, right? So it had, it, a key part of Schumpeter's is implementation. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, we can come back to the, to the destructive bit, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> what you're suggesting here there is that perhaps there are varieties of innovation. It's not purely technological. It has different forms. And even in terms of value, it may not just be about profit or market share. It may be a broader notion of value. So Suchetto, could you sort of illuminate us on the uh, sort of varieties of innovation? Yes. So um, there are different ways that you can look at innovation, whether it's a product innovation or a process innovation. Uh, it's, you know, as Jeremy said, it's not just technology. You have so many different sides to innovation as well. But one of the challenge that I would like to specifically talk about here, which I think has changed significantly since the way innovation was looked in the past, was this either or 
debate on innovation in terms of incremental versus radical. That, oh, some companies engage continuously in only incremental innovation. Um, you know, like for example, Microsoft was known for really focusing on its operating system and using that as really a very strong way. And then you have other companies that continuously engage in sort of radical innovation, leapfrog products, you know, like for example, Apple coming up with iPhone for the first time, it was a leapfrog product. But now the, the, the conversation about innovation has been more in terms of companies do not do one or the other, but the challenge is for companies to do both simultaneously. Because in order to really make uh, innovation successful, uh, rather than looking at individual innovations, companies are looking at portfolio of innovations. And in order to do that, it's very important for companies to develop uh, processes, cultures, structures, have the right people in place who can actually integrate and synergize and manage these very different types of innovation simultaneously to together. So rather than looking at either or, innovation is becoming much more about integration, synergizing, and really bringing different types of innovations together. And that's actually the whole idea behind ambidexterity, that innovation is much more ambidextrous, where you are looking at different types of innovations and doing them simultaneously. I mean, it's, it's ambidexterity, but this, I think what you're alluding to is there has to be a system of innovation, right? So the, too often we find companies will try to replicate the best practice and not look at that best practice within the context of their own capabilities, what they can do, what the opportunities are. And the, the key to being successful in innovation is recognizing that it is a system. It is the culture. It is the processes. It is the structure. It is the type of innovation. Right? And that there is this continuum all the way from the most incremental. If you want to say, you know, the really incremental are just continuous improvements <laughs> that are happening. right? Even at Microsoft, right? Microsoft was, yes, known for the incremental improvements in their operating system, but that didn't mean that they didn't have Microsoft Labs. Yeah. Right? So they were, they were working on big projects. But then the question, you know, through this whole, it's been called the lost decade, right, at Microsoft of not having any really big breakthroughs there. But why is the question, right? What, what fell apart in the system that was there? And I think you could look at it and say, when they started, they were in a scenario where they were kind of the big player. That was it. They could hire who they wanted to. Everyone wanted to go there, so there was demand for people. And the culture didn't matter as much. It was the big egos that, that you know, kind of drove the day. But as the ecosystem evolved, there was more competition, the system broke down. And now you're trying to put innovation in a system that wasn't so geared towards innovation. And what do I, what do I mean by that? Um, you were trying to have operational excellence, you were having forced ranking, right? So if you're going to have forced ranking and you're going to have um, correction of errors where you're going to essentially publicly humiliate people, that's not going to drive an innovative culture. Or if you have business units that are, gonna, are driven to make sure that they sell the enterprise licenses and don't get any incentives to adopt a new innovation, but instead have to lock in their incentives for the year in advance and are penalized for any deviation, that's counterproductive to adoption of innovation. So that's not an innovation system. Even if you have all the moving parts, some of the moving parts in place, they don't work together. I think that's, that's the key that I think what Suchetta is, is alluding to. So, so is, it, is it a good system of innovation similar across different industries or different sectors? Are there, are there some sort of generalizable characteristics of a good 
innovation system for a business? I, I think to generalize across everything, is there one? No, I don't think there's one system, right? There's contingencies, um, but a lot of this has to be driven by what are the objectives? What's going on? What is going on in the environment? What's going on in the ecosystem? How, how is um, innovation within that industry progressing? What's the timelines for things? So if you're in a chemical industry, building a new fab, fab is a much bigger investment and requires a much longer time frame uh, than releasing a new app, per se. So there's going to be different contingencies given the different industry that way. But there might be some similarities in terms of the broad descriptors. Yes. For example, companies that have cultures that are adaptive, companies that have structures that are not rigid. Rigidity is bad uh, regardless of which industry you are in. Adaptability is uh, great. Things that you can change, where you have very strong feedback systems, where you know people are much more, uh, you have systems where new opportunities can be recognized in a timely fashion because you know opportunities are very fleeting. So if you want to have innovation, you need to have a system that is able to sense those opportunities in the right way. Now, how that system works, and that I completely agree with Jeremy, that how adaptability is built in, how opportunities can be recognized in a timely fashion might look very different in different industries. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly that it's one where you do have characteristics of an innovative organization, right? So a lot of this is even going away from saying how, not just being an innovative organization, but how can we replicate some of the characteristics of even entrepreneurs yeah. in our organization, right? This agility, this willingness to challenge assumptions. Yeah this relentless pursuit of an opportunity, right? So the idea that I'm resource constrained, but I'm not gonna let that stop me, given the resources or time or money, I'm gonna now go after this and be relentless. And I'm gonna have now the culture within the organization that's gonna allow that to happen. And there's some communication up and down, so I can, my organization will listen, I, can, I have some place to go, there are opportunities that can make it up, and the part where the big organization is, it has to be strategically aligned, right? So that's the, the difference usually between an entrepreneur outside of the organization and the entrepreneurial culture in an organization is some established organization has some strategic direction they're, they're, they're going for. I think a good, good case in point would be what happened to Nokia. Mm. Um, mm. And it, you know, it's almost as if dominance and excess, well, abundance of resources can, can become a curse of innovation. Um, and I remember sort of sitting in on, on strategy classes um, sort of 15 years ago, and people were being taught that Nokia was so dominant it would be impossible for anyone to, to replace them. And of course there was a shift in technology, Nokia didn't react, um, didn't want to cannibalize its own operating system. And of course and the rest is history. Yeah. And I completely agree with, you know, both Jeremy um, uh, uh, as well in terms of, you know, and Simon as well in terms of this whole idea of, you know, fearing to fail. I mean, if you really want to become a, a, a very successful, innovative organization, then one of the aspects that I would add 
here in terms of the discussion that we've had is the idea that you know you need to be open to fail failure is not necessarily a bad thing in fact failure can actually and failing fast can actually be very very important so there's been research done for example by Rita McGrath from Colombia who talks about failing by design and what she says is that some of the best or organizations which are innovative uh, in terms of systems what are some of the systems that you put in place for innovation failing by design but it's important for an organization to identify the no fail zones so these are zones where you cannot fail but apart once you sort of define what those zones are the rest is going to be all about adaptability and adaptability is all about failing learning changing and adapting so adaptation comes out of you know not fearing uh, failure and I think that that will definitely is one of the virtues of an innovative organization as well. Can I just explore the, the, the boundaries of these innovation systems or the innovation ecosystems? Because we talked a lot bit about the organization or the company yeah. and about its culture and about it being adaptable and being able to change. Um, but where, where are the boundaries? Because increasingly we say now that firms have to be much more open mm. rather than closed. And it's not just the organization, it's connectivity to their supply chain, yeah. to their customers, um, to other organizations, to universities. So where are the boundaries now of a successful innovative system for a business? I mean, are those boundaries really quite flexible and fluid nowadays? I think one of the biggest issues, particularly in strategy, the strategic perspective to innovation is moving beyond organizations to platforms because you actually have so much, like you said, interconnectivity and these network effects that are happening uh, are so strong. You know, Apple is successful, not just because of their uh, own products, but they are successful because of the networks of Apple apps, the kind of apps that you have, the kind of, you know, development that is done uh, uh, on that. So it's it's much more the whole idea of connectivity and, and com competition is becoming much more platform-based rather than this based. You have some of the best companies having some of the best innovative individual products which actually fail. And I think Simon mentioned the example of Nokia and one of the examples of Nokia for the demise was that they didn't think platform. They, 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 they basically just thought that they were going to do everything themselves internally and rather than actually building connections, building platforms, building alliances, they tried to do everything and, and that was just not something and they got into the platform much later once the other platforms had already gotten the presence. So uh, at least from from when, when, when we look at it from from strategic perspective, I think platforms is, is and ecosystems is where the innovation is coming because a single company cannot build all the innovations. It's a very collective process. Jeremy. I think there's so two sides on that. One, to look at the dimensions of culture, so the dimensions of the organizational culture that you're talking about, and then the dimensions of the type of innovation, right? So Sucheta alluded to the platform, or I'd say, ecosystem or, or network that you're looking at. Right? So a lot of innovation happens on the product side, on the what that you're doing. Much less is on the how, right? So if you looked at the volume of innovation all on the what, this is where all the volume is. But that's not generally where all the value is created, right? A lot more value is on, on the how. Those are hard to do, to really figure out how that happens. But on the limits, I think what's interesting there is to, to look at the, the dimensions of, of culture because you're um, and say when is it good and when is it 
bad, right? So can you actually have all of these things we've talked about in terms of an innovative culture, can that ever be a bad thing, right? I think this is maybe where you're getting. What are, what are the constraints on, on that? And you can, you could say, well, there are organizations, you, you could go back to Xerox Park where they had the innovation, but they could never commercialize it, right? So there was, an, there was this innovative culture where you were just gonna generate innovations, but you never knew when to actually commercialize it. Right? So when can you take it, implement it, and bring it to market? And putting all those things together is, is not easy, and you need to have all the, those parts. Some of it can even be, um, if the famous example, you can look at the iPod and you can look at um, Compaq had their MP3 players. They weren't the first with the MP3 player, right? They were the first with MP3 player and iTunes and the whole system. And you could look at that part and say, here's a, so that was breakthrough innovation. Well, yes, but it was built off past experience of Steve Jobs also had gone through the next computer. Now, if you look at the next computer, that was not the biggest success story, right? Much for the same reason that the prior MP3 players weren't a big success story. Next computer was launched, but it didn't have the ecosystem. So there was the failure. That failure happened, and now he could learn from that failure and go forward to the next launch and make sure that there was more of an ecosystem. So a lot of these things we tend to cherry pick, the really successful innovations, and say, look, at, look that's how it's done, but we tend to forget all of the innovations that didn't work so well that built up to that point. And so therefore we think there's just this big breakthrough and we've, we need to look hard at the path that, that led to that big breakthrough. Mm, absolutely. And uh, you know, if, if you look at the, the catalog of failures that Apple has suffered o over the decades, it, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and if you look at the recovery, the recovery is actually somewhat remarkable too in terms of it was... Um, you know, when Jobs came back in, he just really pared everything down. It wasn't, it, it, Apple wasn't saved by a big breakthrough innovation. It was saved by essentially operational excellence, right? We're, we're spending money. We have too much proliferation of products. People don't know what the difference is. And this is, again, what we find very often people will say they're innovative by measuring the number of new stock, you know, SKUs, the number of new products that are launched that year that generate new sales. But if you actually dig down and look at that and say, were these actually new or was it just a new part number allocated to a, a pretty much an existing product? And that's not real innovation, right? So you have to look at it and have a real honest conversation with yourself as an organization to say, is this useful? Are we moving the bar on this? Can we count that as innovation? Could I just go back to, to something about innovation systems? I mean, you raised this issue yeah. of innovation systems, and we talked about having the right component parts of an of innovation system. It also seems to me that's also one of the issues here is the, is the connections between the system. How do you build connectivity both within the organization and outside the organization? And that, isn't, that is partly about culture, um, but it's also about having skills and access to external knowledge. Um, I mean, how, 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 does a, how, do you do, how do you develop those sort of skills to, be out, to go out of your organization or out of your business unit and bring good ideas in 
and also, as you say, to extract value from them that's useful for the organization. And I think here, different organizations have different approaches. And I think like what Jeremy said, you know, some organizations might want to do everything internally by building the cultures. And if you look at innovation at the individual product level, some companies actually introduce everything themselves. They, they have their own unit, but then you have other companies. You know, Corning, for example, has a company that has thrived on alliances. They don't do everything themselves. In fact, they have a lot of different alliances with people. You look at some of the radical innovations like autonomous cars that people are talking about. It's just not possible for a single company to engage in those kinds of innovations. So you have sort of a, a, a collective of innovation, but then that collective becomes so cohesive that you that these platforms tend to then emerge. So even if you are a small little entrepreneur doing a single product, if your product is not queued into one of these ecosystems, you are going to be in a market where you are not going to have a way to get to the customers. So now almost these big platforms are becoming gatekeepers for any kind of new products to come in to sort of launch these products. You need to somehow be part of the platform. You need to have a product that sort of is compatible with the platforms that you can actually put on the uh, on the platforms and increasingly it was seen as oh platforms are only for you know high tech products but now actually even 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 industries like pharmaceuticals are now getting into open source system because what is happening is that traditionally innovation was seen as an r&d driven activity the fact that you are going to have these super scientists sitting in the thing and 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 basically driving innovation through the r&d department but now that's not the case. Now the, the, the customer side of it, the people side of it, the culture side of it, alliances are becoming so important. Increasingly organizations are having a unit dedicated only to the management of alliances because their innovation is driven not just from their project management or their R&D department or product development teams, but it is basically through alliances with other companies. So you have all these connectivity that I think the organization definitely needs to, uh, need, needs to do in today's age of connectivity and, and, and ecosystems. Okay, could it, okay so, sorry, I, I butted in. Jeremy, you've got an important point to make. No, I, I don't know how important it is, but I would just say you need to have some, uh, I think there's the, the role of the integrator becomes really mm. critical, right? So what, what is the integrator? Is that, integrator, is that, that so an the organization role of or a person? Or? The, being, it's being able to establish relationships, right? So relationships matter, um, having systems be it incentive system status, formal and informal, that reward and recognize and promote people uh, according to the relationships and adding value to the organization. So if you have a siloed, a very siloed organization, the integrator is the person that understands where all these So the integrator are. may have special skills. Yeah, and a lot of it is the, the integrator is the person that might not that might go on easily unnoticed. The integrator is the person that makes everyone else more, more, more valuable. The integrator is someone that, that has knowledge of people throughout the organization. And outside the organization. Can be out inside, outside, right? So these are, depends on, yeah. depends on what type of system, yeah, okay. It depends on the system you're operating within. I mean, you could even, you can, there are things you can do to impact that. Take, take Corning, for example, right? So Corning is a, is a company that, this is traditionally just a B2B, company, right, which is usually just a technology push. You could, you know, we, we probably hear more about them because of the buzz around Gorilla Glass and, and all the phones, right? But Gorilla Glass was first invented in 62, 
Right? So there was a technology, it was invented in 1962, shelved in 71, I believe, and then it wasn't until, you know, early 2000s when it, when it you know, landed on the, on the phones. But now they've reorganized around that, right? And they've done things that have changed the way they operate, recognizing that now that's a new opportunity for them. They've pushed to work with the electronics industry and say, okay, if we have something that seems to fit the electronics industry, because now we have deeper relations with you. We have deep relationships with Samsung, with Apple, with all of these companies that whereas prior we were just going to be scientists in a lab trying to have a discovery and make sure that this is robust and repeatable and we feel comfortable about the technology. Now, early on, when we think we have a discovery, now this is uncomfortable for the scientist, right? But we're going to now talk to the customer. Is this something that interests you? Right? So that, that can move the innovation the customer-centric part of the innovation so much further in the process as opposed to saying we're going to work on this, make sure it's repeatable, make sure it's a good technology, and then go and see if anyone wants it. Then you're back to the 1962 Gorilla Glass, right, where you're going to develop something that gets shelved. Now if you have a discovery, huh, look at this. Let's talk to someone. But to do that, you have to have a relationship. Okay, we've talked a lot about innovation systems at the level of the firm or the organization. What about the innovation systems at the level, say, of the city or the region or the country? How do you build a, an effective local innovation system, or perhaps more importantly, a national innovation system? Well, I think one, one of the best possible case studies would be here in Cambridge. Um, well, both for good and bad? Arguably, yeah. um, but there, you know, there, there's some really remarkable practice. Um, and if you look at the development of so-called Silicon Fen, I mean, the majority of those businesses were started by a relative handful of serial entrepreneurs and innovators, all of whom know each other, all of whom have started businesses together. So you'd, you know, you'd have people like Herman Hauser and Jonathan Milner, and the, you know, now these people are sort of meta-connectors within, within the ecosystem. So if you want to get something done, pretty handy to talk to those sorts of people. Okay, so the, but we've, you've, you've focused on the people. What's also important, arguably, about this system is we've got two universities and a world-class hospital here. Yeah. And those institutions may be important anchors. Yeah. Absolutely. Important. Okay. If we think about businesses and workers, businesses and workers tend to move. Yes. Universities don't tend to move. Well, this one hasn't, the, the main one here, the biggest one, and anyway, hasn't moved for over 800 years. So it acts as an anchor, it acts as a connector, it acts as an attractor. So is it, is, do we need to think about the institutional structures of places that may be very important as well as having the individuals there? Yes, I mean, given that innovation is very uh, knowledge intensive in a sense, I think uh, the whole, you know, there is agglomeration uh, economics that talks about how these, how these clusters actually develop around the world. And it again goes back to the connectivity. So on one hand, it's very important to have sort of proximity to uh, uh, high level educational systems. That's why you have, say, for example, Silicon Valley, which is, you know, close to Stanford, Berkeley, the high tech, uh, you Universities, you have Silicon uh, Fen here, which has uh, uh, you know close proximity to University of uh, Cambridge. But I think the government plays a role as well in terms of creating the necessary infrastructure to for these companies to thrive. Because yes, institution can attract it, but in order for companies to actually sustain it, you need to have sort of the the base.
basic infrastructure uh, that can allow the companies in terms of doing business and, and things like that, which would be uh, very essential uh, in order to do that. So government support would definitely be very, uh, very important here. So, so the, role, the role of government is, is infrastructure or is it, is it more broader than I mean, that? Take it's the, broader uh, than that, yeah, yeah, but yeah. At, as a first step, yeah. it's infrastructure yeah. that will attract it and then building on that and providing uh, additional support as well. Yes, absolutely. And there's, there's, it's not by mistake that um, Silicon Valley is, is kind of upset about the visas, it being difficult to get visas in the U.S., right? Yeah. So the yeah. visa situation exactly. is, if you look yeah. at just a foundational part, you have to have, people have to be able to get there. If, yeah. if they have the capabilities and talent that it attracts, you have to be able to yeah. move there, right? And so that's yeah. a... That's a massive role of government and that could have a huge impact. Even IP, intellectual property, is yeah. another area which is extremely important yeah. when we are talking about innovation. And if there is uncertainty around that, if the rules are not in place, right rules are not in place where companies can actually suffer from that, that, that would be a huge you know, uh, uh, barrier to innovation as well. What, what, what about the argument that actually also government is very important in funding a lot of basic research, yes. which will then evolve into many productive innovations? Actually, much of many firms don't do R and D, and those that do do more D than R. Mm. Yeah. Much of the R is funded by through universities or yes. research institutes. It's funded by government, not only in the UK yes. but in the US, in Asia, yes. increasingly in China. Yes. So, government may have a very active, very important role in the innovation system yes. that's often hidden. Yes, but I think there I would like to make the distinction of invention versus innovation because I think as Jeremy pointed out, when we are talking about innovation, we have this commercialization aspect of it. We have the value of satisfying the customer need. But when we are talking in invention, we are talking about adding the body of knowledge for which a clear uh, value or a clear customer or a clear revenue stream may not be available, but it is. It might be so fundamental that if some if that research is done, it could it could lead to several different types of uh, innovation. So there, I would like to make a distinction between uh, between basic sciences, which is sort of much more invention, which could be a foundation then for applied to apply it. To make it innovation, but if that if that's not funded by government, then then private exactly. firms are not going to fund Absolutely. it. Exactly, absolutely, exactly, because that's that's not the one that's generally going to be implemented very quickly. Right? So this these are the building blocks of innovation. Exactly, it could and take fifty, hundred years, and the, the research may never, 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 never generate. But it then eliminates, like yeah. like like yeah. Jeremy said, it's yeah. there. There is the, the the failure, the fact that there are many things that need to fail before a new invention comes in. That would be an example of that. You need many basic researches to fail before the new one comes up. And we're, we're seeing exactly that, for example, with graphene at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, and it, it, you know, if we look at where it is on the hype cycle, the Gartner hype cycle, you know, it's totally overhyped. People are beginning to lose, lose hope. Yeah. One day, you know, with enough money put into the basic research, it, you know, it could be transformative, but it, it could easily take decades. Does that help explain what, um, to paraphrase the, the, the solo paradox, Solo said um, something along the lines of um, many years ago, uh, we can see innovation everywhere apart from in the productivity statistics. So we can see a lot of investment in research, development, technology, basic research. But actually in many industrialized countries, productivity is pretty slow or stagnant. Is it because it just takes an awful long time for ideas to be developed into new products, processes and business models? 
why is product this is, this is the most difficult question so far <laughs> so why i've got an even more difficult one in a minute but why, why is productivity so slow in so 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 sluggish in, so in one of the countries? things is that i think there is definitely the disruptive side of innovation the innovation is not something that's easy to do uh, and it takes a lot for you know the innovators dilemma that basically if if things are going really well if the company is getting a lot of revenues from existing uh, uh, existing products, you know, why engage in something that's going to disrupt something in the short run, even though in the long run it might actually lead to improved productivity. So there is definitely that uh, sort of dilemma that, you know, we want to keep things going the way they are because if it's new. So there is actually research that has shown that, you know, disruptive innovation always comes from companies outside of the industry because you need to have somebody who's going to come out and disrupt things rather than sort of the insiders who have sort of the motivation to keep going uh, in terms of that. So the investments might be massive, but if they are in the same areas, if they are regurgitating the same thing, it's not going to really be at least lead to huge gains. I think it's some, there's a large lag. I think yes. you're, you're, so you're having a massive amount of investment. If you want to, I, I mean, thinking what would be the counter to that? If you want to boost the productivity, just shut off all investment to basic research, and yes, you can get a, a bump in productivity, but that's short-lived. Right? Yes. So if you want to do that, sure. But if you want a sustainable productivity, well, then you've got to have the investment. So it's, it's a pay-it-forward sort of investment. The, are you ever going to get ahead of yourself? That's... I, I, I doubt you'd okay. get ahead of Okay, so it's, so it's a, long, a long lag and probably very difficult to define that lag, a, a variable lag. Uh, and it's also disruptive. We've heard that, you know, from... I think... But, but I mean, can I just think about the yeah. disruption thing? That's what I, I mean. I mean, it, is disruption a good thing? Because, I, I mean, so many people think disruption is a bad thing because it may disrupt society. You may have good firms who are actually going to go bust. You may have disruption in the labour markets. Many people say that... Look at the new jobs being created. You know, record... Unemployment's at the record low in the UK now. But what are the sorts of jobs? They're unskilled, they're um, casualised, part-time. They're people working for platforms and taking all the risks. So is disruption a good thing? So the only... I just want to even step back a second, because the word disruption is thrown around a lot, right, in terms of disruptive innovation. But here we're not just talking about disruptive innovation in terms of Clay Christensen's definition of disruptive innovation. We're talking about how innovation disrupts society. And yeah. that's a yeah. different... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I just want to... Yeah. We, it's it's, a it's worthwhile it's a to, yeah. Yeah. to clarify, because I, yeah. I think the whole the notion of disruptive innovation, that people are encroaching on a market and you don't realize that where they're coming from, that's a different conversation. So here I think what we're trying to say is the pace of innovation. So Because it's not the first time that innovation has disrupted society. right? You could look at the agrarian revolution, the industrial revolution. But what's changed? The pace, right? So it's, it's faster, right? Because there's lots of people who are displaced. Um, and this somewhat gets back to your prior question of what's the role of government in this? Perhaps it's to slow innovation down. Ah, I don't know. It's, it, I, I'm not so sure it's to slow it down, but it can be to, to coach and nudge and direct it, right? So it's, innovation is much more of an, I, I would argue, much more of an evolutionary process. Evolution is not something you, you, can, you can stop, I hope. Right? It's, it's, it's going to happen. Um, if you try and squeeze it off one way, you, you're not sure what, what the repercussions of, of that are going to be. But you have to be careful of, of sort of the, the group thing, for lack of a better term. So if you, you know, there's, you can, you can, or the bubble mentality of people can be in a bubble around innovation and not quite recognize 
the impact, the broader impact of, of what they're doing, right? So one of the things that happens in these innovation ecosystems in Silicon Valley, in Silicon Valley, my here everywhere is, you get so engrossed in your network of people and how you do things and how you view that you forget the impact that it's happening on the on the broader world, and that's something that we we need to remind everybody. So one of the things I think that I would like to say here is, you know, that you pointed out to the dark side of innovation, that it's disruptive, not in the Christensen form of disruption, mm -hmm. but more in terms of really disrupting society as a whole. I think one of the areas that is a huge area that is building up to really sort of address that is the idea of social innovation, mm -hmm. which is actually looking at problems that that not just customers are facing, but also in terms of the problems that developing countries are facing, the problems that this, and one of the areas is frugal innovation that, you know, Jaydeep Prabhu here has done a lot of research on, is innovation is not coming up with these expensive, high leapfrog products, which only a very small segment can afford, but it's basically looking at innovation in the form of addressing or creating basic products which people uh, which are excluded from, from, from the traditional markets can actually afford addressing their needs. And I think that's where government can also come and play a very important role in terms of actually using innovation for the societal good side by side with this traditional notion that we look at innovation as sort of this money-making uh, uh, tool for organizations and commercialization and satisfying customer need. I think the social side of innovation is a very big one, and I think Simon has been very closely involved in that. Yes, absolutely. And I, I do a lot of work with the Centre for Social Innovation, um, and you know, some some really fascinating programmes. I mean, just, just could you could just tell us what exactly what social innovation is then, and in, how how would you define it compared to commercial innovation or private sector innovations? I don't think we would necessarily um, say say that social innovation wasn't commercial. Um, so it you know. Essentially, the way we treat it at Cambridge are the very often these are for-profit businesses that do create value for society, rather than necessarily just being a charity or, or a not-for-profit. Um, but it would, for example, you might look at the triple bottom line. You might look at sort of social good being done. You might look at environmental good as well as as financial returns. Um, typically, you'd be raising different sorts of money. Um, to fund those those kinds of businesses from impact investors, um, so it's a very very fertile area for for innovation at the moment. And this is around the world in developing yes, countries. Yes, ab ab absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, sort of going back to potentially the dark side of innovation and, and the impact on society. Um, we had a fascinating debate in an, in an MBA class last week about how society is becoming more and more polarized, perhaps by social media and, and by these big online platforms, that you know, perhaps has resulted in, in, the, in the Trump phenomenon and certainly in Brexit, mm -hmm. um, and, and views on the left and the right hardening considerably. Um, and potentially, I think that's quite a worrying... Well, that's, that's a worrying dimension of this sort of the, the concentration of power, arguably, in some platform technologies. I mean, if we take the, the big tech companies, you've got uh, the dominance of the so-called big five, Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. I mean, they're innovative firms, but are, are they good for 
consumer welfare? Well, I just want to be, we need to be somewhat cautious in terms of returning to where we started of is innovation technology, and it's not. So we, here we're talking, we, we tend to kind of say it's not, but then we always return to the focus on the big five tech innovation rooms, right? And there's the disruption of, and, and the need for innovation. If we, if we throttle that back, you also have impacts on social innovation. And we, we, what we want to do is nurture innovation, innovation in a broad sense, not necessarily just tech innovation. I, I think... Okay, I mean, let me, let me push back a little yeah. bit. I mean, th those five firms I mentioned are, are built a lot on tech, yeah. but not just on tech. Absolutely. I mean, certainly they, they built on a wide range of innovations beyond tech. And, and I suppose my, my general point here is that it, when we see technology developing, we see lots of new firms formate, forming, lots of entrepreneurial firms in it developing. And then as those sectors develop and mature, they get consolidated. There's mergers, mm -hmm. acquisitions, mm -hmm. takeovers, firms fail. And then we end up in a very monopolistic position. Yeah. Now, is that good? I mean, generally, economists don't like monopolies. But actually, if we look, certainly, the, these five companies are, are now the, similar to what the oil companies were at the end of the 19th century. And yeah. I think on that, actually, is, is you could look even in global power sense, right? So yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah. not just and, this and, is and one global world, influence. Is global what Simon's saying exactly. in terms of so global, global influence. influence. Yeah. But I would like to also say that there is there is definitely emergence of new companies, and not just these five. And the two companies from China that I would like to give example of is Alibaba and Huawei. Yes, because yeah, yeah, you know to really say that these are the five companies and. Huawei has actually overtaken uh, some of the really strong Western counterparts. Alibaba is definitely, uh, you know, side by side. So I think uh, innovation actually gives way to new companies emerging as well, rather than to just to say that these are the only five companies in the tech sector. You have uh, uh, quite a few companies coming from Asia. Infosys has been, uh, uh, you know, for example, has been coming up as well. Also, it's, although it's not as big as Huawei and Alibaba, but but you do have you do have companies, new companies that actually come with very different perspectives, very different ideas of what innovation is, and bringing really new ways of resistance and disruption here in terms of the market because this is the way the Western tech companies have been look, looking at. And you look at companies like Huawei, which have been relatively recent, but they have come up so fast. Mm -hmm. Alibaba came so fast, and it was able to not only stand against um, uh, big companies like eBay and Amazon in China, but now they're looking to move outside as well. So I, I would actually so, say so, that there are other... So, so just a final question, really, because we, we need to explore this topic, obviously, in greater depth, but I know everybody's got uh, lectures to go to. I mean, are we seeing a, a rebalancing of where innovation takes place? Is it, are we seeing it shifting from Europe, North America to Asia? And you talk about frugal innovation to, to Africa and other parts of the world. So we're seeing a rebalancing, not only of economic activity, not only of political power, but in terms of where innovation, and we need to perhaps broaden our, our vision and not be so centric on what's happening in Europe and North America. In some areas, definitely, it's it's broadening, and you have, and, and you look at the Fortune uh, uh, Fortune 500 list, Fortune 1000 list, you had pretty much American and Western companies dominating it, and now you have a lot of companies from Asia being part of the uh, Fortune uh, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 list. So I think there's definitely there's a balancing. I think there's one thing we can be sure of, that at some point in the future, what happened to Nokia will happen to Google, will happen to Apple. Um, it's just that we don't know when. Um, if I was a betting man, I, I would say that threat 
to them would, would come from China yep. at the moment because you're absolutely right, Suchata, the rate of innovation in Chinese companies now is, is quite remarkable. And government has been a big, absolutely. big uh, role there. I think that's a very important topic that we need to look at, not only the economic growth in China and other Asian economies, but their innovative potential and their innovative policies. So I think that's a, certainly a topic for a future podcast, the, the rise of China, particularly in terms of innovation. Um, we are running out of time, so uh, I'd like to thank uh, my contributors today, uh, Sucheta Nadkarni, Simon Stockley, and Jeremy Hutchin Krupat. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and we hope that you can join us next time. <laughs>